0: It Doesn't End Here is intended for mature audiences and may be disturbing to some. Please use discretion while listening. The cycle of abuse is defined by the ways in which an abusive partner keeps a victim in a relationship. There is a simple tool that describes what occurs in an abusive relationship known as the power and control wheel, and it breaks down the abusive patterns into four phases. Phase one is tension building. This phase can last anywhere from minutes to weeks. During this stage, stress builds and abusers may begin to feel wronged, ignored, or neglected. They may accuse, yell, demand, or have unrealistic expectations while the victim may feel as if they have to walk on eggshells constantly. Victims believe making a small mistake will make their partner angry, so they try to stay quiet and not cause any arguments. However, no matter what is said or done, it seems like the victim is never right, and a small incident can create a difficult situation in seconds. The second phase is the incident. At this stage, the victim says or does something the abuser feels upset about or threatened by, and the abuser attempts to dominate the victim through verbal, physical, or sexual abuse. The third phase is reconciliation. At this point, the abuser might feel remorse or try to initiate an apology. This can entail them buying flowers, gifts, booking reservations for a nice dinner, or suggesting a romantic vacation they often promise it will be the last time the abuse happens. The abuser might stress that they did not want to do what they did, but the victim made them do it because of their lack of understanding, wrong behavior, or because they do not listen. The last phase is calm, also known as the honeymoon stage. At this point, the abuser is kind, calm, and interested in fixing their relationship. They may even make false promises to go to therapy or take an anger management class. The victim may believe the abuser has changed and accept the apology. Once the apology has been accepted, the abuser then starts to find little flaws or behaviors that they criticize in a passive-aggressive way and the apologies become less sincere over time. Little by little, the same behaviors begin to reappear and the cycle again returns to the tension building phase. It's not always easy for a person to know that they are in an abusive relationship, as an abuser may disguise their behavior or character when you first meet. Often, controlling or possessive behaviors won't present themselves until the bonds of a relationship grow tight. It's important to pay attention to the cycle and try to trace the pattern. And if you're questioning if you are currently in a cycle of abuse, than you probably are. I'm Rachel Metacroft, and you're listening to It Doesn't End Here. last episode, Mason had physically attacked Laura, leaving her with a black eye. While she didn't tell anyone about the violent attack, her sister April noticed the bruise and started getting suspicious.
1: After leaving the store with my sister and living a lie, basically, just, I had to lie to my family and friends. I didn't have to, I wanted to, because I didn't want them to know the true story. They didn't really know what was going on. There were so many emotions going on in my head. It was just like, I couldn't focus solely on just one emotion. You know, I still love him. I still wanted to be with him. But it was all these circumstances that had happened leading up to this point. My heart and my mind were playing tug of war with each other. Like it was a constant battle of, no, you need to leave him. My logical side, my sentimental side was like, no, I love him. I want to help him. I knew he should not be doing what he was doing. He, I think he knew he shouldn't be doing what he was doing, but he was still doing it, and I was still allowing it. I don't know if that's like a good word to say, but I wasn't leaving, so I wasn't stopping it.
0: After months of financial abuse, emotional abuse, and now physical abuse, Laura was at her breaking point. She decided to secretly break her lease so she could create some space between her and Mason.
1: Around March, April, I had gotten out of my lease and so that I was living in because he could not live there with me. It would be a violation of his registration for sex offenders. I got out of it to get away. He thought we were getting out of it to move somewhere else together. Another reason why we moved out is because every single night it was something else. It was not one night of no abuse his increased paranoia state because he wouldn't take his medication properly was really messing with him. So he started waking up in the middle of the night. He was awake. I had to be awake. At first I was getting like breaks in between and he would be like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I love you. Don't, you know, I'm not going to do that again. But then becoming like in the February, beginning of March, I was getting abused almost every single day. It was a constant nonstop battle of him waking me up in the middle of the night, just like hitting me with his hands. He would scream and yell at me and accuse me of sneaking out in the middle of the night and coming through the window. I'm like, if I was coming through the window, that's our bedroom. Like you would see me. And every time I even got up in the middle of the night to like go to the bathroom, he would wake up. He's like, what are you doing? I might go to the bathroom or, and he would like follow me to the bathroom. Like, is there anybody in here? And he would like check the shower and check the closet. I was like, no one's in here. Like I am going to the bathroom. I was so exhausted, so tired. There was times where I would literally have to drink Monsters all day, like energy drinks, because I was so tired from being up all night. But I ended up actually moving in with my parents and he ended up living in his, in his car until about mid-April or so. The only thing is, is when I broke my lease, I had literally spent almost $4,000 to try and get out of my lease because I still had like six months left. I kind of had to lay both sides of it. I had to make sure he understood that, that I wasn't trying to get away from him because if he thought I was trying to get away from him, I didn't know what was going to happen. I was almost fearful at that point, if he knew I was planning on never seeing him again, would that be the end of me? During this time, he was constantly like getting really, you know, a lot more paranoid living in his car, moving around a lot because he didn't know if someone would come up to the car, if someone would come up to this. So his increased paranoia was constant.
0: Where in Oklahoma City would he park his car usually?
1: He would go and sleep in the Mercy Hospital parking lot. He would sleep in this like donut shop parking lot. He would go sleep at the Dollar General parking lot. He was in one of those three places all the time. There were some days he would just like sleep all, well, according to him, he would sleep all day. And then because he slept all day, he would be up in the middle of the night. And he always thought like people were out to get him, like people are going to come over here and kill me. And I'm like, no one even knows you're in here. Like, I don't understand where all this people are out to get you. Nonsense. I don't think anybody could ever understand the state of paranoia he was in. Even he didn't even understand it.
0: Was he on drugs? Like, do you think he still had access to getting any type of drugs? Or did he have money for that?
1: He didn't have money, no. Any money that he had came from me. We would go to the store and get him like water and, you know, and cans of food for him to eat while he was in his car.
0: What in the world? That is the craziest way to live your life.
1: Yeah, he seemed okay with it. But then he would like take it out on me and tell me like, it's my fault. I haven't gotten a house yet. You know, and I'm like, you're the whole reason I am in this predicament. Like, (laughs) I wanted to get away from you, but I couldn't tell him that he was just in a constant state of paranoia. So I tried to always calm him down. I tried to always and and it came to a point where there was no calming him down. There was no bringing him out of that state. You know, he started tearing up the car on the inside and like smashed in the screen where the navigation was. So it wasn't working at all. I mean, it was just like crumbles. Because of his jealousy and because of the constant accusations I was getting from him, it made me worry. Those feelings of my past with Peter started coming up and being noticeable with Mason. So everything all in one, it became like this disaster of a relationship.
0: You hadn't even been divorced from Peter for a whole year.
1: No, six months at that point.
0: Exactly. And you were still trying to like grieve and deal with the loss of your marriage, plus all the trauma and abuse that you suffered through that. Then six months later, you're in a completely different type of abusive relationship, but still had the same feelings. I mean, it's crazy.
1: Exactly. It's (laughs) thinking back on it, it's mind blowing that I didn't take the time to grieve my marriage. I think I thought I'd already grieved it because of the four years of counseling I went through. But I definitely was not ready for a relationship, and I jumped right into it right after my divorce was finalized.
0: By April 2021, Mason had completely stopped taking his medication for schizophrenia, and his accusations and paranoia were at an all-time high. After living in his car for two months, Mason decided to go stay with his family in Blackwell, Oklahoma, which is about an hour and a half north of Oklahoma City.
1: He decided to go see his family on his own. He was gone for two weeks and we just talked over the phone, and it was actually like good conversations. We barely fought. It was kind of nice. Like, he was getting fulfilled with his family. He was having a great time, it seemed like. So, he was happier. There wasn't, you know, it kind of broke up our mundane relationship of like constant fighting and arguing and jealousy and accusations. He seemed nicer and he would you know he would say, "I miss you, I love you, I can't wait to see you. you know. At the end of April, he had been sleeping in his car and he woke up and he's like, "I've been up all night, I've been freaking out. Can you come and see me before you go to work?" I met him. We were sitting, and this was like early in the morning, like, no, there's no one out, <laughs> no one about. And he was so angry and just yelling and screaming. And he had been up all night and he looked insane. His eyes were almost black looking and they're bright blue. He was a completely different mason at that point. So when I got into the car, you know, he had his whole pallet laid out. You know, the back seat was down so he could lay, like his feet would be in the trunk and he would be up on the back seat in the car. I remember being scared. Like, I did not want to go there. I did not want to be there. He started with the name calling. He started calling me a bitch. I was a whore. I was a slut. And I was like, this can seriously not be why you wanted me to come over here. Like, I I need to go to work. I have stuff to do. I I can't. I was like, I cannot deal with this right now. Like You seriously cannot want me here just to call me names. I was mind blown. I was like, I thought you were wanting me to come over here for like a hug and a kiss. Good morning. I got mad at him and I started yelling at him and I was like, this is not going to keep happening. Either you change or we're no longer going to be together. Like I can't, this cannot continue. And he got mad and he was basically saying if he can't have me, no one else is going to have me. He's never said that before. I need to get out of this car, like, right now. So I tried to get out of the car. He grabbed the back of my head and pulled me back into the car, reached over me, and shut the door. The next thing I knew, he had hit me with his fist on my left side of my face. When he hit me, it actually grazed the front part of my eye. I didn't get my eye closed in time because it happened so fast. My vision in that eye went completely dark. I couldn't see. My vision was so blurry. You know, I started crying. I was like, why would you hit me? I didn't understand. He's like, if you want to continue to be jealous and accuse me of cheating on you, then this is what you get. Were you even accusing him of cheating on you? (laughs) No, he was the one accusing me. And he would completely flip it around and then tell me that I was doing it.
0: Gaslighting you so badly, trying to make you feel like you're the crazy one when really it's him.
1: Yeah. After he abuses me, it's like he comes into a point of, like, clarity. And then he calms down. I don't get it.
0: Laura was finally able to get out of the car and leave. She was beyond rattled and had blurred vision in one of her eyes. Not knowing what to do, Laura went to work like everything was fine.
1: I had taken a patient back. She had some testing that needed to be done. I was sitting there performing the test on her. In this room where the tests are, we have to have the lights off so that we can get a good, you know, visual of the inside of the eyes. And this test went from dark to light really fast on the screen. It caused so much pain in my eye when it went to bright. I covered my eye and I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, the patient was like, are you okay? And I was like, like, I didn't even realize how I reacted out loud (laughs) because it hurt so bad. And I immediately got a headache. I asked my doctor to come over. I was like, hey, can you look at this eye? Like, I have so much pain and my head is pounding. And he was like, well, where did, you know, where did the pain come from? And I said, well, when I was doing this, it's called an OCT, an optical coherence tomography. I said, when the screen went from dark to light, I felt so much pain. He was like, okay, well, let's take a look at your eye. And so I got behind this little lamp and he looked at it and he was like, you have a lot. It's called cell which is a lot of red blood cells floating around inside of my eye, which I had so much of it that that's why I couldn't see out. Um, there was so much just like red blood cells floating around that it was like distorting my vision and causing blurry vision. But oh. when light went in, it scattered it. So it scattered light everywhere. And that's what caused the, the pain because the light had nowhere to go. He was like, what happened? He's like, you weren't hit. I kind of stuttered and I was like, no, I don't remember getting hit. Maybe I hit my head somewhere. You know, I kind of like just made up this random, no, nothing happened. I don't know what happened. I don't know. He's like, well, this is weird that it would just happen on its own unless you have like an autoimmune disorder. And he was like, but you don't have one, right? And I was like, no. He put me on steroid eye drops that I had to use for like two or three weeks. Um, During this time to get the inflammation to go down, I had to keep my eye dilated at all times. So because every time my pupils would constrict um, in light, it would cause pain.
0: April, did you see any other marks or bruises on Laura since the Apple Store incident?
1: There was another time, and we were in Sam's with my parents, but that is when she had to dilate her eye. And I said... Why is your eye dilated? She said, or the doctor said that it was inflammation Yeah, in the eye. And I was like, well, how would you get inflammation in your eye? And she goes, I don't know. It just happened overnight. And my mom and dad are listening to this conversation.
0: <laughs> yeah, what were they thinking? Like, were your parents aware of anything?
1: I think they bought it. Really? I think they bought the lie. After about two or three weeks of I could stop dilating my eye, and I could um, I tapered off the steroid eye drops, and it was fine. My vision came back 100%. Thank goodness. Um, I don't have any like residual happenings or anything going on with that eye.
0: Close call, though. C- you could have lost your vision.
1: I could have completely lost it. Did you
0: tell Mason about your eye?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I told him, I said, this is what you did. And he almost had like no recollection of it. He was like, oh I didn't God, do that. Uh, I was like, yes, yes, you did. Like I I was there. Like I, this wouldn't have just happened by itself. I
0: cannot even imagine going through that and like getting hit that hard and then just going to work and pretending like everything was okay. I mean, did you want to tell your boss, like the doctor, did you want to tell him? Like I was physically attacked this morning.
1: I wanted to tell him, but then I was also scared of what would happen to Mason if I did tell somebody like would he go back to jail? Would he go, you know, would the cops get called? Like, what would happen? And I was like, he can't go back to prison. Like, I I have to keep him from going back. He instilled that in me. He's like, I will literally hide in the mountains and not go back to prison. And I was like, well, if you don't do anything to go back to prison, then there's no reason for you to hide. So I think that whole mindset of like him saying that constantly then it became my mindset like okay he can't go back to prison
0: you just felt so responsible for him in pretty much every way possible like anything that was going to happen to him was all based upon you as you said earlier for someone who has been dealing with their own trauma plus trying to financially get back on your feet and dealing with all this crazy abuse like that's just so much for you to have to take care of
1: yeah It was a lot, and I was doing it solely on my own. No one knew any of the abuse that was going on. No one. A day or two later, it was in the morning time again. He was mad, and I said, you know, I'm running late to work. I've got to get to work. I've got to open the clinic. It was my day to open. He followed me to work. He was driving crazy. He tried to get in front of me on the highway and slam on his brakes. I was screaming at him in my car, even though I know he can't hear me. But I was like, what are you doing? Like, stop. Like, this is, you're going to cause a wreck. So, like, 45 minutes to an hour of doing that with him, I got to work. He found me. I was the only car in the parking lot. He pulls up, like, you know, my car is facing the building. He pulled up perpendicular to my car. I was like, oh, my God, like I was trying to get my car back on. And like, what is he going to (laughs) do? I couldn't get it it turned on. He opened my door. He slapped me in the face. He said, that's what you get for not answering my phone calls. I had to chase you all the way down here and then slam my door shut and got in his car and sped off. And I was like speechless. I didn't know what to do or say. And. There's cameras on my building that look right down in the parking lot, so I was mind-blown.
0: Not knowing what to do, Laura went into work to open the clinic. She was shocked by what had just happened and hoped that that would be the end of Mason's abusive episode. However, he returned later that day and asked her to come
1: outside. We sat in his car in the back parking lot of my work. He was you know, like, you need to help me get everything in order. I need to leave. I need to get out of here. He was like, there's so much crap in my car. I can't get it organized. My life is unorganized. I need you to help me get my life, you know, in order. And I was like, every time I try to help him, it just ends up with me getting yelled at, screamed at, hit. And so I was like, I try to help you, but I can't. Like, every time I try to help you, this is what happens. And he's like, it only happens because you're a dumbass bitch. And basically, I don't know what I'm doing. He had, like, a bag of water, you know, like, 24, 30 pack Mm -hmm. of water bottles. He threw them at me. They hit me. And when it hit me, kind of knocked me back. You know, we were outside of his car trying to get everything in order and trying to find stuff then the water just like flew everywhere all over the parking lot. So I'm like trying to pick up all the waters before anybody comes back from lunch. And he's like screaming at me. My purse was in the passenger seat. He took my purse and was like taking stuff out of it. And like in the back of my parking lot is like this big field. He took things out of my purse and started throwing it in the field. One of my doctors comes back from lunch and is like, Laura, is everything okay? And I was like, yeah, it's fine. Just please go inside. And she was like, are you sure? And he was like, there's nothing to see here, you dumbass bitch. And called her that. She starts walking over. She's like, what did you just call me? I was like, go inside. Please go inside. Just leave. He ended up driving off. And when he drove off, he was, you know, screaming and yelling at me.
0: After arguing in the parking lot Laura went back inside to her coworkers who were anxiously waiting for her.
1: You know, when I walked in in there and I was crying and some of the girls were in there and they were like, "Laura, what's going on?" Like we heard like inside of a two-story building, they could hear him, like brick building. They could hear him yelling at me. That's how loud he was yelling. The doctor that he yelled at and called names came down to me. She was like, "Laura, what's going on? Like this is not okay. This is not What should be happening here? You know, she almost kind of got mad at me for that going on in our parking lot, but I was like, I can't, I can't help it. She was like, Do I need to call the cops? And I was like, No, don't call the cops. Please don't call the cops. Like, and I just like broke down. I could not stop crying. I had mud all over me. She was like, Pull yourself together and let's, you know, do you need to go home? Do you need to? And I was like, No, I want to stay here. I can't. I literally cannot leave this building because. I don't know what he'll do to me if I leave this building. One of the girls came in and she asked me, you know, was that Mason? And I said, yes. And she was like, Laura, you deserve so much better. She was like, your demeanor has changed. You know, you're not your happy self anymore. What is going on? Did he cause that inflammation inside your eye? When she said that, I literally like fell to my knees and just cried. She sat there with me and hugged me while I was crying. She just let me cry. That was the first time I had been able to let it out in front of somebody. She honestly didn't say anything. She just held me. It was nice to not have to explain myself. It was nice to just sit there and let my emotions and me feel my emotions at that point. It was something I hadn't been able to do for me to be in a safe place at work, surrounded by
0: people that love you.
1: Yeah, they were understanding. They were there for me. They um, were the first people that knew what was going on because then I had to tell them. Yeah. I had to make sure he never showed up again to my work. They told anybody if he called up there. You know, not to let him talk to me. If he showed up, someone would call the cops. And at that point, I was okay with him leaving. Like, I was okay with him leaving in a cop car. I could not stand any more abuse.
0: If you or someone you know is in an abusive relationship, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE.